Hi, my name's Autumn, and I'm a counselor for Royal Family Kids Camp. When I was six, given my mom's circumstances of being in and out of jail, suffering from drug abuse, postpartum depression, it was ultimately a choice to go to Mooseheart or end up in the foster care system. Besides being really nervous and scared and just like not knowing what to expect, but it was also exciting and kind of like a new chance. So my first like huge experience um, at Royal Family Kids Camp was actually before I even got on the bus. I met another camper who was in my cabin who actually happens to be like my like lifelong best friend. When me and Alexis first came to camp, we were very similar in the sense that like we were both the first sibling who had younger brothers, didn't have the best family life. I think Juliana was not only like a camp counselor, but also kind of like a bigger sister to us in a sense. She was a good role model, like somebody that we looked up to, that we could have fun with, that we could talk to. The most important part of camp that really stuck with me as I was a kid was just like noticing like that the same people showed up every single summer to serve God, but to also be there for kids that are in need and can really use like a week of fun and love. Over the years of attending Royal Family, like obviously there was a really big sense of family, community, and friendship, but it also made like going to church and learning about God like a fun thing. Royal Family made it interactive and made it feel special in the sense that like teaching children that they're royal and that they have meaning and value at a young age I think is really important and meaningful. Filling that gap in between camp, you know, waiting until the next summer, Juliana and I would write letters, she would send me Christmas cards and that was something that I think really like strengthened our relationship and you know let me know as a child like oh this isn't just my counselor at camp like this is someone that cares about me and loves me year-round just like you know god would do or a family does you know like their love doesn't just stop Hello. i've always thought that you were special and you always held like a very deeply special place in my heart and only getting to see you once a year i you know wanted you to have something to that you could look back on all year and like know that you are always going to be on my mind. You're always going to be part of my life and my thoughts and my prayers. My dearest Autumn without an end one. <laughs> I didn't put an end. Wow. If there's ever a time I can't be with you, never forget how much you, how much I love and care about you. You're a beautiful young woman who has fully captured my heart. You're on my mind every day. You never leave my heart, and I have your Italian bracelet with me as a reminder. No matter what, I'll always see you again. You're so wonderful. Everybody in my life knows about you because you have such an impact on me. Love you forever, your sister Juliana. I think volunteers for Royal Family Kids Camp, especially the counselors, you know, the impact that they have on the campers that they might not necessarily realize is really big.
I decided to come back and be a counselor because again, I know how much impact it had on me as a child. It really is like a family. Like there's people that have been there for years and years. There's people that are just starting. So it's really cool to come back to the same people who are there for the kids, but also for God, because they know that there's a reason why they're being called to come back every year and volunteer. Such a great stories. I always say this about a lot of the videos we see. I just think we are so privileged to get to hear stories like Autumn's. Uh, it's so great. So I hope that when we do those videos, I hope you, you kind of hear God's call to you. Because that's not just something that we want to show you and say, look at that, isn't it fantastic? That's an invitation for you to come and join what God's doing with Royal Family Kids Camp. And so we've, we've got people out in the lobby. We'd love for you to stop by there. Make sure you say hello to them uh, and see if there might be a spot for you this summer. Because really it is as you head from autumn, it's impacting lives, and, and God wants that to happen through you. God's inviting you to do that. Well, uh, on the way over here, I was over at South Street this morning. I was talking to Pastor Brian. We were talking about how uh, here in the wintertime, uh, especially in January, something kind of changes a little bit within us. Um, he was talking about how when it snows before Christmas and when it snows after Christmas, there's kind of a shift. Like b before Christmas, it snows. You're like, oh, isn't it beautiful? It's snow. It's going to be a white Christmas. And then you hit January, and do we talk that same way? No, like, oh, I'm going to have to get the snow blow this morning. It's going to be painful. Yeah, we, something changes in it. We become kind of glass half full people in January. So I think it's great that as a church, what we've chosen to do in this first part of the year in winter is to bring ourselves to a book that reminds us the glass is not only half full, it's full all the way. The good news of Genesis is that creation around us, the world around us is good that God is doing something good. And so I hope for us as a church, what we're taking from this each week is that God has good news for us. It's not just a story about something that once happened a very long time ago. This is the reminder that all in cre God's creation is good. And this morning we're looking particularly at that which turns creation from just being good to very good. And it's you. This morning we are celebrating the best news of Genesis 1, which is that God has placed his image in creation. Last week, we finished, if you were here, Pastor Brian ended this kind of story of the first six days of creation with a quote by a scientist called Francis Collins. Francis Collins, if you don't know that name, is the former head of the G Human Genome Project. Uh, it was a group of scientists that were mapping human DNA. Uh, and this is what he said. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as though it knew we were coming. That when you look at all the different chemical processes, the way that the laws of physics work, it's almost as if they're kind of tracks that are pointing towards something in particular coming. And what I've been feeling as we've been traveling through these first few days of creation, looking at the stars of the heavens and the oceans and the earth that God created, I find myself kind of thinking about that, but also thinking about the words of Psalm 8, which tell us this. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Author of Psalm 8 says, when I look at all of creation, I look at the amazing things that you've made, God, I wonder, well, who am I? Who am I in this grand scheme of creation? But he also answers it for us. Says, goes on to say in verse 5 of Psalm 8, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. This morning, what we're doing is we're answering that question, what is man? 
Why is man significant? Why are we so important? Why are human beings so important? And the answer is because you and I have got something that the rest of creation doesn't. The image of God imprinted on who we are. And here's what I hope you pick up this morning. Your life is of indescribable value and significance. In fact, part of the tension that I feel as a pastor this morning as we preach on this is, if I had six hours with you, if I had 24 hours with you, if I had 36 hours with you, I still would not be able to plumb the depths of what it means to God that you were created in his image. That he loves you, that he sees you, that you are of eternal significance to him. So we're going to try as best we can in 30 minutes to capture the beauty of this. And when you find yourself getting lost in the sea of questions that come up from this, I hope that you would come back to what we mentioned at the start, that this is good news. That there is good news and there is no bad news this morning. Only good. That to be created in the image of God is good news. So we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at the fact that we have been designed by God, that we have been defined by God, and that we have been dignified by God. First, let's talk about how we've been designed by God. I was going through some family pictures recently. I'm not one that kind of thinks that I really look like anyone in my family, but then I came across this picture of my second son, Ben. So that is me on the left when I was probably about five years old, and that's Ben on the right there. If you don't know Ben, that's pretty much how he always looks. And uh, we never told Ben about this picture on the left. He's never seen it. To this day, my son Ben has never seen that picture on the left, I don't think. But I was looking at it and realizing that without him knowing that, my son's making the same face as me at the same age. That it just comes out of him. That, that my likeness is there on his face. And while I feel sorry for what that will mean for him in the future, <laughs> um, I'm, I was encouraged and excited about this because as we come to this idea of the image of God, isn't it beautiful that hardwired into human beings and the way that our children look like us is a glimpse as to what it means to be created in the image of God. That we bear something that makes us think of him. That when you and I look at each other, there should be that same sense that when, when we look at our children, when we see somewhat of our face, we should look at each other and we see somewhat of the God who made us. This is what we're told in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Some of the most important verses in your Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the beds of the heavens and over the livestock. And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. The Bible insists that there is a uniqueness to your design as a human being. And you might notice that at this point in Genesis 1, the whole flow of the chapter just changes. It's almost as though there's been a key change in the song. Everything kind of slows down to a halt for a moment. So far in Genesis 1, there's been kind of a, a rhythm to everything that's happening. Each day, God says, let there be, and it was, and it happens. There's evening, there's morning, and that's the end of the day. And this repeats itself for six days, but something different happens on day six. We've already seen that on day six, God creates the, the wildlife that fills the earth. But then where we would expect it to say, and there was evening and morning in the sixth day, God stops still. And he does something that he's never done so far in the story. He talks to himself. God stops and he talks to himself. He says, let us 
make man in our image. What God is doing here is putting the cap on everything that he's made so far. It's the pinnacle of his creation. It's the crowning moment. It's the moment when he is going to reveal his best creation yet. And the rest of the Bible goes on to affirm this. It's reiterated over and over again. Even in Genesis 5, just a few chapters later, the author wants to remind us so that we don't forget. Tells us in Genesis 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And if we fast forward all the way to the New Testament, Christians still want to hold on to and and share this good news that you and I bear the image of our creator. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching to a group of people who've never heard the gospel before. And he says to them, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul even cites some of their own poets. He says, some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul's kind of playing with them there because we all have this sense, don't we? We all have this inbuilt sense that we share something in common as human beings and it's far more than just our DNA. It's the image of God. The point of all this is that you and I are not just a random outcome of chemical and biological processes. Whatever they were, there is something significant, intentional about us. There is a design to us. What does that really mean? What does it mean for you and I that were created in the image of God? Firstly, it means that we are uniquely thoughtful. We are uniquely thoughtful. In all of creation, you and I, human beings, we're the only thing that God creates that kind of think for ourselves, that act over and against our instincts. If you're a weirdo like me, or Pastor John, who likes to watch nature documentaries too, you you watch these documentaries about animals that are driven completely by instinct. The things that they do, they're almost pre-programmed to do them. But human beings are the only thing in all of creation that ask questions that have a will to act over their own instincts. Human beings are the only creatures that think about beauty and love and justice and morality. We're the only things in all of creation that feel a drive to create art and poetry and music. Human beings are uniquely thoughtful and there's something in that that images our creator who is himself thoughtful, who is himself creative. Human beings are also uniquely emotional. We grieve for things and we celebrate things in the way that other creatures don't. Every time I go to a funeral, I'm reminded of the significance of human life because there are rooms full of people who are deeply in mourning because they loved someone so deeply. There's nothing else. There's no other creature in creation that does that. There's no other creature that celebrates the way that we do, that is excited about new life and and marks passings of birthdays and marks anniversaries of weddings and things like that. There's something unique about us emotionally as people that we feel led to celebrate and recognize things. That's the likeness of God, who himself is deeply emotional about his creation, loves his creation, cares for things that are beautiful, cares for things of justice. You and I are also uniquely relational. When God creates man, the thing that stands out to me, I don't know about you, is he says, let us make man in our image. 
us? Who's he talking to? You know, this confounded a lot of scholars who read the Bible for a lot of years, especially in Judaism, because they believed that God was one. So who's God talking to? Is he talking to the angels? Is it just kind of a strange way of saying things? But what Christians believe is this is our first glimpse at the Trinity. That God is highlighting the fact that he is one God in three distinct persons. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here in relationship together talking about creating mankind in their image. And so it's no surprise that when God does create mankind in the image of that Trinity, what do we find? We find one race of people that have distinct genders and biological sexes. That God does something unique in man and woman that we both bear the image of God, that we are equal in dignity and value and worth, but we are distinct, that we are not the same. It depicts the unique relational qualities that exist within God. Now, I would be amiss if I didn't mention at this point that there are people in our world who don't feel this way. There are people for whom talking about biological sex and gender is deeply painful because they feel this dysphoria, this dissonance within themselves, their identity. And I think it's important for us as we have this discussion to point out two things. First of all, God clearly indicates that his intention, his design, is for two biological sexes, two genders. However, those of us who struggle with this, we need to recognize that they are image bearers. No matter what the dissonance that they feel, that they are to be honored, they are to be loved, they are to be cared for, and that we as Christians should not seek to condemn them for their struggle, but we should care for them. We should love them because they are image bearers. Part of our conference that's coming up in February is to address this very thing. We don't have time today to dig all the way into what this means for us. We'll talk about it again in a couple of weeks in chapter 2. But I just want to encourage us to be thinking about how you might be able to be a part of what happens on February 26th. Our Good Design Summit, where we're going to talk about what it means that God has created us male and female. And we're going to wrestle with these two questions of what it means to hold tightly to God's truth of how he has designed us and what that means for us. But also to love one another. And to honor, honor fellow image bearers for whom this is a struggle. This is a pain. When we talk about the image of God, it's important for us to recognize the significance of that. All of those things that it means are not just high and lofty ideas for to think, okay, this is the way in which we image God. It means something for our lives. As we've already said, it means that you are eternally significant. And Christianity is the only religion which can really account for that significance. It's the only one that offers an explanation for that significance. If we were to ask people on the street, even the hardened atheists, they would say that people matter, that people are significant. But Christianity is the only thing that offers an explanation as to why. In fact, atheist Bertrand Russell, this is the way he talks about humanity. He says, man is the product of causes which had not provision of the end that they were achieving but are the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. We're just an accident. We're just random. But in contrast, this Christian thinker C.S. Lewis says this, there is no such thing as ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And then this is the part that this week really shook me to my core. Think about this. What C.S. Lewis then says is this. 
next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want you to turn and look at the person next to you. And then I want you to look across the way. I know this seat set up for some of you, you hate me for it. But the reason we do it is I want you to look in each other's eyes this morning. I want you to see one another. I want you to realize that right now you are sat in the room with image bearers. Every one of us. And you are the holiest object that God has ever presented to creation. Because you bear his image. Every single one of us in this place this morning. We should look at each other. And perhaps even more than when we're on mountaintops and we say, wow, the heavens and the stars, this is incredible. I feel so close to God. You should say to your neighbor, you should turn to them and you should say, I've never been closer to God than I am right now because I'm sat next to you, an image bearer of God. You are the holiest object which is presented to your senses. You start to see why this image of God, this idea of the image of God is one of the most profound things that you can ever come across. It's one of the most important things you can ever learn. And in fact, in Genesis 1, there's nothing in all of Genesis 1 as important as what is said here in verses 26 and 27. Because the image of God isn't just our design, it's what defines us as people. We are defined by God. I was talking about the image of God with some middle schoolers at our church last week. And in preparing for that, I came across an article that talked about objects that we misuse, that we don't really understand their true purpose. And I wanted to share a few with you this morning. First is a saucepan. How many of you knew that the hole in the saucepan handle was for a spoon to sit in like that? Is anybody else? Am I the only person that doesn't know this? Am I behind on the true purpose? Do you know how many times my pastor has boiled over and I'm, I'm getting stressed about it and I could have been putting the spoon right there? Here's another one. This is probably the bane of oven makers' existence. Did you know that that drawer at the bottom is not just for your junk? It is for keeping food warm. We've got all of our cooking trays and pots and pans in there, and the intended purpose is so that after you've prepared a meal, you can put it in there and it will keep it warm. I know, it's embarrassing. And last one, Tic Tacs. Did you know that that indentation in the lid is a dispenser? Who said yes? You're lying to me. It has never occurred to me that the lid of a Tic Tac uh, tin is for dispensing. Now, the only problem I have with that is, is there anybody who's ever just eaten one Tic Tac at a time? <laughs> now, whoever designed this is probably deeply disappointed in humanity, but I want you to think about it this way. There's so many things in our life that we misuse, we don't understand its true purpose, but what if the real problem for us is that we misunderstand the purpose of ourselves? We misunderstand what it means to be created in the image of God and what that should mean for life and for our neighbors. There is deep and significant purpose that has been placed on you because of the one whose image you bear. This is what we're told in Genesis 1, 28 through 31. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bed of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. 
See, the image of God doesn't just describe our identity, it defines our very purpose. The image of God defines our purpose. First of all, it defines us as worshipers. Let me ask you this question. Why would God feel the need to put his image into creation? He's done some pretty spectacular things. Why does he choose to put his image on mankind? Amen. But do you know why he wants us to look to him? Do you know why he wants us to have that image? It's because you and I are created to be worshipers. You know, the idea that the image of God would be present is not something that's unique to Christianity. Christianity does it in a unique way. But religions the world over will create statues and images of God. I'm sure you've come across this in one way or another. There's religions all over the world whose temples are filled with images of their perceived gods. If you go to a Hindu temple, you might find images of Ganesh. This is something that was happening all the way in ancient times. But God, in the Old Testament, he prohibits the crafting of idols. He says in the Ten Commandments, you should have no graven images of me. Now, why would God say that? Why would God distinguish his people as different from the rest of the world and these other cultures who craft images for themselves? It's because there's already an image. We're not to have graven images of God because he has already graciously and in love imprinted his image upon us. In these other religions, these images, these idols, they would be not something, an object of worship in and of itself, but they were meant to be representatives that would in some way communicate to those that are gathered, God is present among us. Well, the reason we don't need that is because of what we said a moment ago. When we sit next to one another, we are in the presence of an image bearer. God is present among us. We see hints of him. We see his likeness. You and I are created to be worshippers. And this is why God so often will kind of challenge us on the way that we live our life and issue commands on the way we are to live. Because if we are to fulfill our purpose as image bearers, we are to live in a certain way. Paul says in Colossians 3, you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You and I need to think about the way that we treat one another and treat our neighbor because we are image bearers and we are meant to be depicting to creation what God is like. The way that we use our mouth, the way that we use our money, the way that we use our time, the way that we use our relationships and our friendships, all of it is communicating something about who God is. And as an image bearer, we have been given a responsibility to worship thoughtfully, to worship carefully in a way that points back to our creator. We're also defined as overseers. When God crafts human beings, he says something unique to them. He says, I want you to... Be fruitful and multiply to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. When he creates mankind, he says to himself, let them have dominion over everything that's been created so far. And so the purpose of God's image bearers that he creates is to administrate his rule and reign over all the earth. Now it's easy when we hear words like subdue or dominion for us to twist that a little bit and to think, well, what that means is God's created the whole earth for us and we can do with it as we please. Because we're the boss. But if we are to image God to creation, if we are to be like him, then our dominion and our subduing should look like his dominion. 
And let me ask you this question. What kind of ruler is God? Is he authoritarian? Is he heavy-handed? Is he cruel? Is he selfish? The God of the heavens is a king who is gracious and merciful, tender and gentle, thoughtful. Remember that when God created the heavens and the earth, he did not do it to meet a need in and of himself. He did it to share his own joy and love, to expand what was already within him. And so that means as a ruler, his lordship, his dominion is about continuing to expand his good nature and joy to all of creation. And as his image bearers, you and I are called to exercise that same kind of rule and dominion, to administrate the character of a good and gracious God. And so Christians should be at the first in line to care for our world and protect our world because we know that it is valuable in the eyes of God. It is good and we are called to care for it. We have a responsibility to do that. But here's what I think is the most significant thing about this. In most other creation narratives, human beings were created as slaves to serve the needs of the gods. But by calling us the ones who are, are gonna subdue creation and have dominion over creation, do you know what God is saying about us? God is issuing an invitation to not be as slaves, but to be as co-laborers in creation. That we get to stand side by side with our creator and care for the things that he's made. No other God in any creation narrative has given that kind of significance and value to his created people. Only the God of the Bible says to us, I invite you to come and be co-heirs and to be co-rulers and to care for creation with me. So we have a responsibility as image bearers. We have a responsibility to live into the definition that God has given us. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus is so serious about this. There's a conversation that Jesus has with some Pharisees, with some religious leaders who are challenging him about the way that he and his disciples behave. And they get into this conversation about taxes and paying taxes. And Jesus does something very strange and unique. This is what he says in Luke 20. He says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus' reply is, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar that which has his image on it. But then he says, give to God's what's God's. What's the implication? What is Jesus saying there? Because it feels like he might have left something out. If we're giving to Caesar what has Caesar's image on it, and then he's saying we should give to God's what's God's, he's implying that we should give to God's that which has his image on it. What has God's image on it? We do. Jesus is, is superseding these religious leaders who are bickering about these silly things. He's saying you should be more worried about what you're doing with your life and who you're giving that to than who you're paying your taxes to because you're an image bearer. You are an image bearer. You have been created for a purpose. You have eternal significance and that matters. And the sad truth is for many of us is that though we have been purposed for God's glory, though we bear his image and are meant to proclaim him to all of creation, we spend our time trying to image lesser things. We try and image lesser things. We define ourselves by our racial identity, our political identity, our sexual identity, our national identity, our gender identity, our economic identity, and the list goes on and on of lesser things. Things 
whose image we are not made in. Things whom we are not meant to worship. Things we are not meant to serve. We are selling ourselves short of the destiny that God intended for us. And that is the tragedy of sin. Is that there are far greater things intended for you and I as image bearers than the things that we spend our time, our energy, our resources, and our heart on. We will never be at peace until we find our definition in him. We'll wrestle and we'll struggle. All of the purposes in our life must be in service to our purposes, image bearers. Here's what this means. It means that although I have an identity as a husband, that identity should be in service to my identity as an image bearer. I should think in my marriage as a husband, how am I imaging God to my wife? What am I projecting about who he is? As a father, I should think, how am I embodying as a father my identity as an image bearer? How am I imaging God to my kids? Am I displaying that he's gracious and merciful and gentle, or am I displaying that he's domineering and harsh and unforgiving? As an employee, I should be thinking about how am I imaging God? How is my identity as an employee serving my identity as an image bearer? Am I illustrating to my coworkers and to my employer who God is, what he's like, what he values? It's so important that we understand our responsibility as image bearers. There's one last thing I want to get to before we run out of time. Because the image of God is important for another reason. When I uh, first came to America, I often heard the phrase, uh, show me the Benjamins. Now, I figured out that that was about money, but I had no idea why Benjamins meant money until I found out about the $100 bill and whose face is on the $100 bill. Benjamin Franklin, you good Americans. It's harder for you guys because in England we have one person on our, all of our money. We just have the queen. So I didn't understand what that meant when I first came and I figured that out. That if his face was on there, if that image was on there, it says something about that piece of paper. It signifies its particular value. Now, let me ask you this. If the image that is on you is the face of God himself, what does that say about your value? It's indescribable. It's uncountable, immeasurable. And that's why when we are told in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him, we also then find at the end of that section, in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it has ceased to be just good, and it has become very good. Because he has now placed into creation that which is of indescribable value. His own image. In placing his image upon us, God has given human beings indescribable dignity, value, and worth. This is why hatred of an image bearer is hatred of God himself. That's why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies because they are image bearers too. And it does no good and serves not your purpose if you are to pour out these ungodlike things upon those who bear his image. That's why James says in his book in the New Testament, James 3.9, when he's talking about our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, but with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And James is trying to say that doesn't make sense. 
Tim Keller says this, when you believe in the image of God, the circle of protected life expands and expands. But if you don't believe in the image of God, if you only believe that those who have value are those who have usefulness or capacity, then the value of protected life shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until the only people who really matter in your life are the ones that serve you. That's not how it is in the mind of God. God values every image bearer he has ever created. They are of infinite worth. They are of such worth that he would send his one and only son, whom he loved, to be the atoning sacrifice for their sins. Because he wanted to recover those image bearers. Because he wanted to be reconciled to those image bearers. Because he wanted to be near those image bearers. You and I have value and dignity because God has imprinted it upon us. Do you know that atheists can't account for why human beings, and we mentioned this earlier, why human beings have value. One atheist actually said this, Nicholas Wolsterhoff, he said, the concept of inherent human rights can only be grounded in religious convictions. There's an atheist just saying, you know what? I have no explanation for why human beings matter. The only explanation that's ever been given in human history to account for this is the fact that they bear his image. If you see a human person, whether it's a baby in the womb through a monitor, a teenager with Down syndrome at the park, an elderly person lying in a nursing home bed, unable to care for themselves any longer. If you see someone of a different ethnicity, someone of a different gender, I want you to understand you are looking at an image bearer who has dignity and worth, regardless of what they do. They matter to God. It's why Martin Luther King Jr. fought for what he did. Because he said this, he said, every man from treble white to base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Now I want you to think about this as we come to a close. It's easy to do all that when we're thinking about people that we love, a mother or a father or a sibling. What about people who've hurt you? What about people who've wounded you deeply? What about people who have rejected you and visited suffering upon you? I'll close with this story. I, I remember reading a story about a missionary to Iran named Dan Bauman. Dan Bauman, on his time in Iran, uh, was sharing the gospel, something that is illegal in that country to proselytize, to share the gospel. Uh, he made it through his trip and then on his way out of the country was stopped by the authorities. They confiscated his passport, separated him from his co-worker, and he was placed in a prison cell. And every day for three months, Dan was taken out of that prison cell and dragged to an interrogation room where he was beaten, black and blue, horribly. And Dan in his heart began to hate his torturer, hate the Iranian authorities that kept him there. And he would sit in his prison cell, seething over these ones who visited such harm upon him. Until one day he was praying. And for some reason, in an indescribable way, Dan was reminded of who his abusers really were. They were men and women created in the image of God. And in his heart, he realized that these ones whom he hated, whom he wished harm upon, God valued. They were significant to God. And that the very reason he was in that country in the first place was to bear witness to image bearers of the God that loved them and valued them. And so Dan went into his next session 
and decided to change the way that he looked at the one that would be beating him. To look at him as an image bearer. As one who had inherent dignity and worth and value in the eyes of God. And it transformed his relationship with that person. By the time of his, the end of his sentence, when he was um, extradited to Sweden, he'd made friends with his jailer. He'd shared the gospel with his jailer. They'd talked about one another's families. Do you see how recognizing the image of God in another person creates an inroad for the spirit of God to come and do his most important work? And when we resist that truth and we deny that reality, we are cutting off bridges to people that God wants to reach, that God wants to hold and comfort and care for. Your most important job as a human being is to honor and recognize the image of God in other people. It is your greatest calling. As we've said, it's why Jesus came. Jesus is described in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the original image which was then transferred to you. And it's the reason why in Romans 8.29 we're told, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. This morning I want you to remember for yourself and for your neighbor, you are of eternal significance. You matter to God. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you. And he has sent his son so that you might be reconciled to the one in whose image you have been made. There is nothing in your life that means more than that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your gift to us of your image that when you crafted us in our mother's womb, without exception, every human being has been given your image. And Father, we confess that we do not always see that good news. We do not always celebrate that good news. But as James reminded us, sometimes we use our faculties to cast ones made in the likeness of God. And God, as we gather as all of your people in this place, we recognize this morning that there are many represented who all bear your image. And God, I pray that we would celebrate it, that we would thank you for it, and that we would turn to our neighbor realizing what we have. And Lord, we rejoice in you because of it. We bless you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.